Hey Tov, how are you going? I'm going well and I'm really excited to talk about the Tao again, you know, it's, we didn't talk for a long time. And It's been a few months. And every time we talk, I'm surprised at the dynamics that the book has because every time we schedule a talk, it makes ripple in the book itself. And part of what I like about this dynamic is that we're talking about the work in progress. We're talking about mm-hmm. something that has a very clear shape. It's like the clay is not dry. Yeah. The metaphor is quite apt. I think that there are a lot of artists who take an inspiration and run with it and generate something that is a frozen moment in time. And uh, I, I always think of um, uh, Xanadu in that context um, and the importunate visitor from Porlock who stopped that poem from being finished. With this one, it's been writing itself for a few thousand years. And um, even if we do manage to get it into a shape where you and I go, well, that's it for us. We're signing off, folks. If we are successful, all that really means is that there's, there'll be the next generation of translators and conversators who take it up and go, ah, well, now it means something completely different than what those fools thought in the 21st century. Yeah, and, and I think even modern generation, I, I look at it like um, parts of a tree, different branches. I, I think while we're talking here and we're trying to, more you, trying to mold, translate, bring the viewpoint of the Book of Tao to our angle, to the angle of uh, agility, of uh, corporate thinking, of coaching. There are currently other branches, I'm sure, that grow from this source to a totally different direction. No, to a direction that are more spiritual and what we may call, even if it's not nice to say, woo-woo, you know, like... Um, as opposed to woo-way. Look... I'm always surprised when I pick the book up again after having not edited it for uh, some months, as I did today. I completely forget what's in there. And as I as I read through, I always start from chapter one and start going, okay, well, what would I change? And um, I'm, I'm reasonably happy that I don't make too many changes to part one anymore. Part two, usually I've still got some work to do. When I get to part three, it's very wet clay. It's sloppy. There's stuff that needs to be changed, and it's very clear that it's still finding its form. But it's all new to me. Uh, It's as if I I had never done it before after 30 years. So it's. um, I, I like to think that this is a book where I will get things into a shape, where I will go, okay, I have contributed everything to this that I'm going to and um, so long and good luck and everybody enjoy. I think that what we're actually going to do is get this to a shape where uh, there are enough other people who are playing with it, contributing to it, trying to come together to reach consensus on it, that what we do with it won't be very important anymore. But it's fair to say that by joining it up with the agile ideas, modern agile ideas, we've created a vehicle for that conversation. So I'm looking forward to that blossoming and other people being involved in that. Now that we, we've talked on, on, on a very general level, this time there are two more fruits that are ready, right? There are two more poems that, you know the definition of ready in agile, right? So ready doesn't mean uh, only means that that it, it, it we can we can let it be, but we can still work on it. Um, I, there were these two poems, uh, two chapters had been apart in the book for a long time, even though they they actually consecutively they are one chapter and then another chapter in the original form. But I hadn't been thinking of them together for a long time. And then as I was editing today, um, I did a transposition of positions of chapters in part two. And I went, oh, those two have come back together again. And I hadn't really intended them to. But then I saw, oh, okay, I can see how they work 
as a unit. So I think we'll deal with one and then we'll deal with the other. And then we might try and do a read through of the two together and see how they work. If that's not making it too boring for everybody. People always have the right to leave. <laughs> that's true. Or to fast forward. Um, okay. Well, shall I just start? Yeah, let's go for it. So before you do, just one word. They both belong to the third part, right? I uh, know the second part. To the second part. And the second part is? Uh, so this is the part that's about agility itself. Uh, so we, the three parts, flow and agility and harmony. It's not to say that it won't eventually have a fourth part because um, as you and I were talking about before the podcast, part two is a little bit too fat. And part three is a little bit up and down. Both of those parts are bigger than part one. So, but right now that's the way it is. Three parts flow, agility and harmony. Yeah. And in the background, we, we hear the cricket company yeah um i'm in sydney and it's it's um uh, just getting dark at the moment so the crickets are out so it's a summer night yes. it's been a very steamy summer day so chapter 27 the captain a great captain tirelessly guides his ship at sea so that safe in port, he can lose it in sleep. For calm is the master of haste, and care the path to ease. The captain of a great ship dares not treat it as a pleasure boat, acting carelessly or hastily. Without care, he loses his bearings at sea, and without calm, he loses the trust of his crew. The great captain doesn't lead his ship like a jade figurehead, but steadies her like a stone keel. So first I see that it, I don't remember exactly how it was, but it changed a lot. Not that much, really. Uh, I, I think I'm... Um, I changed the, the paragraph division. I, I previously I, I had um, the lines for calm as a master of haste and care that after ease as the start of the second stanza, but I put I moved the stanza division to after that. The second thing is there's tons of words here that I am not sure I understand fully. So perhaps can can we read it as we often do? Yeah. Sure. So a great captain tirelessly guides his ship at sea. Um, I, I love the imagery that comes with this chapter, that it's, it's a very concrete image and an awful lot of the poem is, uh, is more abstract than this. But so that safe in port, he can lose it in sleep. This lovely idea that the last thing a captain wants to do is to lose his ship. But it's also the number one thing the captain wants to do. He wants to get to a place where he can relax and lose it. Lose it, you mean let it go? Okay. Yes. So he no longer has to uh, to guide it. He no longer has to act with, with care. He no longer has to maintain calm. Uh, he's free of it. But that only comes by applying those things. So the great captain tirelessly guides his ship at sea so that he can lose it, so that he can relax. For calm is the master of haste and care the path to ease. So that idea of uh, make it easy to take it easy that we had at the start of, of part two, this is a, a concrete embodiment of it. So far, so good. What do you mean, calm is the master of haste? Well, often when we are dealing with complex domains, uh, whether they are uh, business or various kinds of fraught social domains or just complex technical domains, many things are happening all at once. And um, it's very easy to, to lose that sense of calm. 
and if you do so, then you're usually not too good at anything. You have the old Douglas Adams line about don't panic. So I think that's that's kind of reflected here. If you are focusing on calm and care, then you have a potential of bringing your ship to port. Otherwise, not really. Is that okay, Stefan? Okay, so, so if I get it, you mean the way to handle haste properly is to be calm, and the way to handle ease properly is to care. Yeah. So if you think about the best leaders, the ones that that, um, that you have experience of where you go, wow, that, that leader really, I can trust them. We are in safe hands. There's not an awful lot of shouting and yelling and jumping up and down. They've got things into a place where they can be calm, even if all around them are losing their heads. From examples from my past, it's not only them being calm, but projecting this calmness around them. Yes. Yes. So then the second stanza, the captain of a great ship dares not treat it as a pleasure boat, acting carelessly or hastily. Without care, he loses his bearings at sea. Without calm, he loses the trust of his crew. There are a lot of people who go boating for fun. I remember when I was a child, uh, my father taking me out on a, a Hobie cat, and he didn't really know how to sail it. So there's a condition you can get into with a catamaran where you're facing into the wind. And uh, unless you know the trick, you can't turn the boat. It just stays facing into the wind. The trick is you have to push the boom out against the wind in order to get the boat to turn. But he didn't know that trick. And I remember that we drifted in amongst a whole bunch of boats in um, Rose Bay where we lived in Sydney. And um, yeah, there was a little beach um, by the seawall there. He got out and he, uh, I must have been, I don't know, 10 or 11, something like that. And he said, well, you take the tiller, Pete, you hold onto that. And he got out and he bodily at the beach turned the boat around. Well, that was quite a stiff breeze. And the breeze caught the boat and it just plowed right over the top of him. <laughs> I managed to bring it back around and pick him up and he got it turned around. This time he jumped on and <laughs> we're careening around all of these, these pleasure boats. And we come around this one that uh, I remember there were a bunch of Greek guys having a, a, a little party on their boat and they had a dinghy at the back of their boat. And we picked up the dinghy between the two prongs of the prows of the, of the catamaran. <laughs> so funny. We couldn't do anything. We're just rolling around on the catamaran, laughing our asses off. <laughs> making off with these guys' dinghy. And <laughs> to bring their dinghy back. I, I dare say that there wasn't an awful lot of calm going on and certainly not enough care. So that's a pleasure boat. But a lot of the time when you're involved in boats, I mean, I, I paddle a surf ski, and it's very easy to lose your life paddling a surf ski if you don't take real care if you don't take appropriate precautions. It's very easy, for example, even uh, in a in a place like Sydney Harbour, to fall off, and if you if you're not leashed to the boat, to be bobbing around there in the middle of Sydney Harbour, the other boats won't be able to see you if your head's sticking up above water. Even if you try and wave at them, you can easily lose your life in the middle of the harbour that way. So that kind of care, taking precautions, making certain that you have thought through what can happen, that you have systems in place, that you have done the work that enables you to lose yourself in sleep or to lose your ship in sleep. And then without calm, he loses the trust of his crew. Well, if the crew sees you ranting and raving and, and reacting madly to um, to things that you, even if you haven't anticipated them, you should be thinking on your feet. You should be able to project that calm to the crew so that they can understand, well, the only way we're going to get through this is to work together, to figure it out together. That's really what this is talking to, I think. Okay. Lots of images in my head. <laughs> Okay, so, and let's go for the last answer. The great captain doesn't lead his ship like a jade figurehead, 
but steadies her like a stone keel. I love this bit because the stone keel, it, it, it's invisible. Stone keel? Well, a keel is, um, it's like the weight at the bottom. It's the, it's the uh, you know, there's a, like a fin that projects down from the bottom of a boat. Uh, if it's a stone keel, then it's, it's helping the boat to balance against the, the wind. So it's keeping the boat steady, but it's invisible. It's not there to direct the boat. It's not, it's not there to be seen to represent the boat. It's simply maintaining the function of, of the boat. If the captain is out front as a jade figurehead, um, if that's the way a leader sees their role, that they are there to be, the, there are lots of current popular political figures we could pick on, but any popular political figure, a, a JFK might be a, thought of as a jade figurehead. But if you think about what JFK did as a leader, there was a reason he got killed. Um, and I'm not saying that a lot of his ideals and his initiatives were not fantastic. They were, but they still got him killed. So this idea of steady like a stone keel uh, I think there are leaders who are much less visible. And, and that's another poem, right? The, the best of leaders, no one knows that they exist or something like that. Yeah. Well, we're not going there today. But yes, I mean, there's actually quite a lot of, of chapters of Latsu that are about leadership. But in the original, you have 26 and then 27. And now we have those two back together again. So maybe we should, we should go to... Um, uh, what is now 28 in my part two, but obviously the, the numbering that I use moves around a little bit as we reorder things. So the only original numbering is the numbering that's in uh, Roman numerals here. Should we go there? And, and that's why perhaps one, you should state clearly the title, which hopefully will not change, and two, slow down. I'll do my best. Okay, chapter 28. Shaping wood. The great explorer leaves no trail unmapped. The great teacher, no question unanswered. The great detective, no fact unexplained. The great watchman, no threat unchecked. The great tailor, no thread unraveled. So the Agile find use for everyone, adapting each to each other, and account for the weakest to multiply their strength. The strong must make use of the weak, as the weak are the source of their strength. When the strong neglect the weak, Chaos results no matter what you intend. This is the method of adaptation. As when wood is shaped, it becomes a tool. When a person is served, they become a servant. And a great carpenter leaves no wood uncarved. And I love how this one resonates. It's interesting that um, at the end of the previous chapter, we had the great captain who doesn't lead his ship like a jade figurehead, but studies like a stone keel. The form here is slightly different, but it's very clearly leading on from that idea of the great captain, uh, the great carpenter, the great explorer, and so on. But yeah, I, I, this is actually a very difficult poem to work with um, because a lot of the pictograms Almost all of the pictograms in Lao Tzu have dozens of meanings. So the middle of this one, uh, it's very easy to make it very um, shallow. So um, trying to turn this into something that has both continuity from the previous one, but also that, that has something to say uh, was the challenge. And, and you start here, perhaps we'll dive into the poem, but you start here with five specific examples of different domains. Mm -hmm. 
And again, that's from the original. All of this, I, I do my damnedest to try and make this correspond to the original Chinese pictograms. Which I think it's a great challenge. And then one thing that we, we talked about it a lot, but I would love you to also to say a few words on, but then we'll, we'll dive in, is there is this strange word here, the, the, the agile. Ah. And, and I would love again to, to, to understand what does this, you know, we, we talk about explore, explorer and teacher and watchman, detective, yeah. all of that. And then there's the agile. Mm-hmm. So in the original Chinese, there's this combination of pictograms. And since uh, I only know Chinese from trying to translate Lao Tzu, uh, my pronunciation is inevitably absolutely dreadful. So I won't even apologize for it. Just note that this isn't the way Chinese should be pronounced. Uh, but anyway, Sheng Ren is usually translated as the sage. And in almost all translations, English translations, of uh, Lao Tzu, the word he would be, the sage. And I usually translate this Sheng Ren, uh, which is literally the lively person or the lively people or the lively one or the lively ones. I usually translate that as agility or as the the agile in the agile Tao. And I I think that is the original intent. When we talk about agility, I, I think there is this, that's really where why we have the agile Tao, is that, that realization that that's where this poem is coming from, that it's about fostering interdependence rather than dependence. It's about fostering collaboration rather than competition. Ward Cunningham originally said that um, the reason I talk about Ward, people might go, well, wait a second, what's he got to do with it? Uh, Agile? Ward was one of the, the three original XP guys, and um, they defined Agile before it was called Agile. There is a reason to believe that a lot of the Agile Manifesto actually might have originated with Ward, but I'm not going to point fingers, and he he should feel free to to deny that if he wants to. Nevertheless, Ward used to say that 80% of Agile is just collaboration, and the other 20% is bookkeeping. So this idea of um, collaboration and interdependence and so on, flow and harmony, these are all ideas that you find in Lao Tzu. And you might go, well, wait a second, just because some Agile guy said that back in the dawn of things, well, what's that got to do with us today? And the the answer there is, well, uh, there was another guy back in the dawn of things who was influencing the, the way the culture has developed, and, and that was me. I, I, I presented the, the Tao of XP at XP 2000, and... Uh, Alistair Coburn ran with that uh, in, uh, in his site as well and gave appropriate attribution. And um, th- These ideas have been influencing the development of the Agile movement throughout. So it's not an accident that there's a resonance here. It's, it's baked in. And one thing that I like, and then we'll go into the, the poem, is that by defining the sage as the agile one, mm-hmm. um, we take the uh, the mysticism out of it. No, yeah. uh, none of us is a sage, yeah. but each one of us has a agility in them. Has, has the ability and and you no know, the need, the want, the the, the aspiration to to be better, to be more adapt, to react better, to, to, to not to waste their time in things that are not effective, that don't make impact in the world. Mm-hmm. So I love this transition. When you say the sage, at least me, I, I can't see myself there. It doesn't talk about me. And if, they, if you can, then pretty much by definition, you've failed at it. Because, um, you know, anyone who calls themselves a master or whatever, that's a nonsense. It's just serving ego. The, the sage is really a very poor choice of words for this because, as we said at the start of chapter two, not chapter two, but part two, agility is a way of working, not a, not a state of grace. So this is something that uh, is a practical discipline that applies to all teams everywhere. 
and everybody working in those teams. This is not some super enlightened guru living up the top of a mountain in a cave. Maybe there are such people, but I think the way they make a living is probably about convincing people to bring them food so they don't have to keep walking up and down the mountain. That's not what we're trying to do. Which is uh, an agility in itself, right? is a way to survive by uh, having the facade. Uh, there's a bit of, of advice uh, later on about that in the sense of um, humility. But really, um, if you start looking at, at this stuff as a, a way to gain power in the world, kind of missing the point. Uh, completely missing the point. Okay, but now I would love to dive into the point because there's so many images here that, that are to be explored. <laughs> okay, well, good. We'll start with exploring. because So we had the great captain in the, in the previous chapter. So now the great explorer leaves no trail unmapped. If you can imagine uh, early explorers trying to uh, navigate around coastlines or climb mountains or meet with new worlds and and so on. The idea that you wouldn't produce a complete map, it was something that would create a space for somebody else to be a great explorer. So at the same time, the idea here isn't really about, oh, we should leave no trail unmapped. That's not what we're trying to get at. It's more um, that we have a a series of things where if you someone says to you, well, I know everything there is to know about Egypt, and you say, oh, that's really interesting. So what is underneath the Sphinx? And they say, oh, I don't know. There's, there, are some, there are some doors into the Sphinx, but we don't really know. Well, it's difficult to think of them as the great explorer. They, don't, they, haven't, they haven't got to a place where they can tell you very much that you can't look up in a book. You really want someone who's been there and done that and can actually give you enough of an understanding that you can say, ah, okay, There's, they've given me a place where now they know as much as anyone on the planet knows, if that makes sense. It does, but <laughs> I think that there's no such thing as no trail on map and no question unanswered doesn't exist mm-hmm. and yeah. i agree with you and for that matter uh, if the agile finds use for everyone i think it's more a matter of this is these are activities the great explorer is not someone who's going to go right here's the complete map and i'll hand it off to posterity and i'm done now that's that's not the way it works so to pick uh, on a, a specific historical figure you could think of captain sir richard burton Uh, who was the, the discoverer of the, the source of the Nile and who was um, in the, the end of the 19th century, who um, wrote the first English translations of the Thousand and One Nights and the Kama Sutra. Uh, he was the first European to make his way to, um, to Mecca and Medina and a whole bunch of the Muslim holy sites. And um, he was the closest to... Uh, a real-life uh, heroic figure, when you look back, that you could probably find. He never finished any of that. I mean, he finished his translations, but whether he really finished them, whether he wouldn't have wanted to go back and revisit them, whether he really understood enough of what he was experiencing to say, I, I think that someone like that is never satisfied that they've finished. So, so when you say leaves no whatever, so a, a question, a fact, a, you mean he never leaves or she? Exactly. They, they keep going. Yeah. So then the great teacher, no question unanswered. Well, there's always more questions. So teaching as an activity, um, this is not something where there is some... great professor who knows it all and has it all mastered and no any discipline there's an ongoing exploration of the frontier of knowledge the great teacher has to be involved in discovering the answers to those questions um, the great detective no fact unexplained well okay 
I was trying to find some language that would translate from the Chinese here that um, would be reasonably accessible. But the moment you say The Great Detective, people are thinking of Sherlock Holmes or Batman. And I'm pretty certain that Lao Tzu was not writing about Batman. <laughs> Nevertheless, this idea of investigating some kind of criminal enterprise, well, that was something that happened in China. So The Great Detective isn't that, that big a reach as a translation. So no fact unexplained. If there is evidence that is um, thrown out, is ignored, is uh, hidden in order to achieve a conviction, well, then that's not a great job of detective work. The great watchman, no threat unchecked. Again, if you have uh, a prison that you're guarding or if you have a, uh, a, a vault that you're guarding, there will always be further threats. Uh, security is not something where you can say, right, well, we've, we've locked this computer down or we've We've locked this safe down and we can relax now. It's not the way it works. And then finally, the great tailor, no thread unraveled. Tailors are constantly mending and fixing and dealing with unraveled threads. So this is active work. So far, so good? Yes. Okay. So the Agile find use for everyone, adapting each to each other. This is ongoing work. When we talk about agility, um, if we're going to get our 80% collaboration, if that's going to happen, then this requires constant work by everybody involved. It's not, we're not saying that the agile means some very good agile coach. It's certainly very helpful to have a servant leader who is providing this kind of service to your group. But this is really something we expect people to be doing for each other. In Xscale, we talk about leadership as a service, and we have a protocol for doing this, um, a very simple one. But the whole intent here is to find use for everybody involved to generate throughput in a, a, a business agile context and account for the weakest to multiply their strength. We often have transformations begin with coaches turning up and saying, right, well, the first thing we have to do is clear out all the deadwood. These people here, they are too set in their ways. They're too difficult to work with. We'll just let them go and we'll, um, we'll push change into the organization. And that's just about the worst possible way to begin a transformation, to inspire fear in everybody who's left. And to let go of the talent that exists yes. because we don't call it, we don't recognize it as something yes. useful. Yes. Uh, if instead we go, well, okay, if we feel that these people have um, weaknesses, well, then let's account for those. They have needs is a better way to think about that. And then if we can join them together in such a way that they are not pushed outside of their comfort zone, this is where we get the idea of a pull transformation as opposed to a push transformation, then this generates a much more sustainable, a much cheaper a uh, much less risky, much safer transformation. So far, so good. Yeah, I, I like how you say pushed out of their comfort zone mm -hmm. because one way to do it is to invite them out of their comfort zone. Yeah, they have to see a win. Part of the art here is to demonstrate that there is a win to be had to begin with. That's why with pull transformation, we begin by finding the progressives in the organization and from business and design and delivery and DevOps and bring them together, just a few of them, to demonstrate the way of working, to uh, enable the progressives to bring their strength and then to invite people to try to join them rather than saying, well, now your team is going to do this. No, 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 no. Why don't we take our existing strong team, split it in two, and bring the weaker people in so that they can experience this stuff, so they can learn, so they can come up to speed, and then they will be strong. And then we can do the same thing again. So that idea of splitting and doubling and growing the capability at an exponential rate, rather than trying to push agile capability into all teams, all existing projects and programs all at once, this is a much more successful and sustainable and easier path to walk. 
make it easy to take it easy after all. Yeah, I, I love that line. You didn't originally. It's, it's not that I didn't like it. I didn't understand it the way you intended. That's that's just good. Hopefully, that's the beauty of what we're doing in the podcast. Uh, as you and I are getting better aligned, uh, the folk who are listening can come along with us too. We'll talk about this after we talk about the poem. <laughs> that's okay. We'll talk about both. So then, the strong must make use of the weak. For as the weak are the source of their strength. Well, in the context we just talked about, that's reasonably obvious. When the strong neglect the weak, chaos results no matter what you intend. I, again, it's very easy to say, well, you know, we have the executives on site. And uh, now the executives, they know what they want. They've hired uh, the agile coaches and we're going to, we're going to work uh, to, to demonstrate the wins and we will just ignore the middle management. Well, there's no end of failed transformations that are, where the coaches will, will bitterly curse under their breath that it was all the fault of the frozen middle, the middle managers that just wouldn't come along and they sabotaged us and, and all of this kind of um, uh, sour grapes stuff. And usually it's because they didn't provide a win for the the frozen middle, the middle managers didn't want to become scrum masters and product owners. No one wants to do that. That's, that's, that's really uh, not what someone moves into management to do. Um, so what you're doing is giving them a path they don't want to walk and then going, oh, well, surprise, surprise, they didn't walk it. And instead they found their own path and now we're in a place where we look like bad agile coaches. Well, it's because you were bad agile coaches. Chaos results no matter what you intend. So, this is the method of adaptation. As when wood is shaped, it becomes a tool. When a person is served, they become a servant. And a great carpenter leaves no wood uncarved. Well, we were talking before about finding a win for the people who are not coming along or haven't been motivated to come along so far. A lot of the time, the problem is not agile. The problem is not trying to get a transformation to happen. The problem is that your reward models in your organization cause bad game theoretics, cause politics, cause people to focus on uh, KPIs or OKRs that don't fully contribute to improving end-to-end -end throughput. You don't give people a sense of ownership of the business within which they're working. So if you, if you don't do those things, then they are not serving uh, your purpose because you haven't served theirs. So when a person is served, they become a servant. When, when they can see that, hey, the way that they win is the way that you win, well, they will support your win. So a great carpenter leaves no wood uncarved is a strategic idea. We, we need to think about all of the people who are involved and go, all right, well, how are we going to account for the weakest to multiply their strength? How are we going to find their win in such a way that it's going to contribute to our win overall? I love the images that you bring to life. One thing that I'm asking myself hearing this is, we know, uh, if I believe you, Lao Tzu never existed. But I often ask myself, if he came to life and saw today's reality in this book, how much would he feel ownership? <laughs> so it, 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 we don't have to answer, but like it, it, it's, it's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, when I first started translating Lao Tzu, um, I thought there was an original. Uh, I thought that um, uh, I was trying to be faithful to the original. And then the more I researched it, the more I went, wait a second. The best expertise I can find is telling me that um, uh, either Lao Tzu is a bad translation of the Bhagavad Gita or the Bhagavad Gita and Lao Tzu are both bad translations of some lost verbal tradition we don't really know where it came from. There's reasonable evidence that China at that time was influenced by horse riders that uh, came from very far to the West. There are 
mummies in the Tarim Basin in China that date back 10,000 years that are um, six-foot-tall, red-headed, Caucasian-featured people wearing conical hats and tartan. Is that where Lao Tzu came from? I don't know. No one does. So um, part of the reason for the Agile Tao was the realization that actually what we're looking for is not uh, let's take the Chinese pictograms and take them literally and try and really polish them up and, and give them a high-gloss sheen in English. What we're trying to do is take a jigsaw puzzle that's been scattered across the floor and try and find a coherent form for it. Let's plug this stuff back together. Let's reorder it. Let's, um, let's take some liberties and see whether we can find meaning which may or may not be the meaning that was originally intended. When we talked about Sheng Ren before, I don't know that, that the poem wasn't originally about some great guru figure on a hill who rode an ox off into the distance and, and left his wisdom for you know, the, the whole Tao Jiao version of things, the religious tradition version of Taoism. Maybe that's right. I don't know. What I do know is that there's value to be found in this activity, in this pursuit, in this poem, and that that value is what I'm trying to bring out. So, uh, and I, I love the podcast that we're doing because it's making that value that value more accessible than we can have just by having a, an English translation of a Chinese translation of an Indian translation of or a Hindu translation of some lost oral tradition that might have come from Scotland, who knows? Yeah, and, and that's that's why I wanted to start it, because I think the, the book is beautiful, the book in, in any form, not only yours. And I think that um, it's not that accessible. It's very dense. Like, poetry tends to be much denser than, than, than talk. So that's why I wanted to do. I, I'd love to end with the question that I always ask. And, and I would love to ask this of, of the listener, if, if you're still here. Given the two poems that we read today, what image, what, what image is created in your mind of what a leader is, especially compared to the leaders that we know or we are? And I think that everyone is a leader at some extent in their surroundings, be it QA person, an HR person, and of course, if your title includes something managerial, leaderial in there, what sort of behavior would you examine tomorrow or today, if you, if you hear this in the morning or on the way to work, and in what way would you be more mindful to how the ecosystem that you're part of functions and how it can function differently? So that's the question that I would love to pose. I think it was Steve McConnell who said that uh, you don't have a role or your role is team member. It, it, that's, that's what's important. The, if you get given a particular kind of a job title or a particular kind of a responsibility, that's in service of the um, overall mission or vision of the business you're involved with. That's, that's really what you're there to do is to take ownership of the whole. And uh, the fact that you are providing a recognizable form of leadership, whether it's to do with database architecture or security or business leadership or marketing or whatever it is, that's, again, in service of the whole. So you're trying to bring that form of leadership to serve the other members of the team. That's not your, your primary role. That's something that um, is a convention that people are coming up with to make it easy uh, to understand who to go to. But you you really have to think in terms of the whole. Yeah, and also like one thing that uh, when you say responsibility, I think, or, or ownership, you said I think, mm. you... leaving no wood uncarved. This is really not advice to uh, some manager who owns a team. This is advice to everyone on the team. Yeah, and and that's what I wanted to say. 
that if I own something, doesn't mean that you don't. Yeah. Mutual benefit. Yay. All right. That sounds like a good place to leave it, Dov. Yeah, I think. So thanks a lot for showing up, and I hope that we'll see each other next time. I wonder what, what sort of changes the book will happen. What, what sort of carving will you do in, in, the, in the book for next time? I guess I'll keep going. <laughs> Take care. Take care. We'll let the music play us out.